And we are allegedly live. Good day. It's 1300 on the East Coast. It's 1800 on the Zulu Coast. And this is PFG Live. So we're waiting for our check-ins. And uh, greetings from New Hampshire, where the temperature is currently 36 degrees and winter forgot us. There's no snow on the ground. And uh, we're doing good. Hey, there's Brian. Welcome aboard. Brian, you're number one. Nice to see you. Brian, as number one, you get to give us an audio and video check. Check, check, check. Tell us how we're doing. So I hope uh, I hope everybody got a chance to watch the uh, the last video with Aaron Walla, which was really cool. Aaron is getting ready to spend some coin on a new grinder for his home shop. Thank you, thank you, Brian. Mister Blodgett is here. Greetings. I was thinking about you, Mister Blodgett. I have not forgotten our our Circle Lap project. Thanks, Brian. Um. And in fact, I, I was thinking, I, we're going to talk about lapping today because I got back on the lapping bandwagon and, uh, and, and that got me thinking about your, your thing again, but we will, we will be talking about that. I'm trying, the problem is, while we're waiting for everybody to show up, I'm, the problem is I'm trying to figure out a nice, uh, the appropriate pattern to put in to act as the cutting edges. In fact, maybe we'll talk to some other folks about that today. Carl's here. Welcome aboard, Carl. Victor, welcome. Nice to see everybody. Uh, it's been it's been a, a a little bit of a quiet week in the shop. Although I am working on PFG stones today, as usual. You guys know how to order exactly what I'm out of. Uh, Bob Labs is here. Welcome aboard, sir. Hey, I saw your, uh, your welding and subsequent, uh, filing of, of, a uh, an eye on the end of a shaft that looked really good on Instagram. Nice job. Uh, let's see what else is going on. I will I, I will save the facts until about five minutes after, which is our tradition here, before we I give you some follow up. How's the weather everywhere? So uh, in the in the chat, just put your your state and then give me a give me a weather update because I don't know where winter has gone. We had one cold spell, we had a little snow, and it's all gone. And I'm worried. <laughs> I'm worried that statistics is going to bite us in the butt. Okay. I'm just pulling my, my props over here. Oregon reports 40 degrees and wet. That's a shock. Ohio reports 31 degrees and improving tomorrow. But what do you consider improving? Is that going up or going down? If you saw the last uh, the last post I did on Instagram reminding everybody to show up today, I had a banana for scale, and I have to report the the 
untimely demise of that banana. But it's sacrificed for a good cause. Okay, we're uh, coming up on five minutes after the hour. So I have a couple of things to report. Uh, the thermal experiments with thermal control of my coolant uh, is going s uh, splendidly. Hey, Henry, welcome aboard, sir, from across the pond. Nice to see you. Uh, we put the we put the 800 watt submersible heater, which is designed for uh, aquariums, big aquariums, into the coolant tank, and it has been terrific. So most of the win, I think, comes from the efficiency and having a submerged heater and not having that you know, magnetically attached heater. Uh, but also 800 watts is pretty nice to have. The People's Republic of Rhode Island is reporting 31 degrees and gray, but try. K-Bonk is here. Welcome aboard, sir. And K-Bonk says, what's up? Nice, nice. We'll let you stay anyway. Uh, so Rhode Island is colder than here. It's 36 here, man. And we're north of you. Something's wrong. Uh, anyway, so the the thermal control is working beautifully. I took a data point this morning, this just in. Uh, in one hour, it it moved the coolant tank, the 30 gallons, uh, nine degrees. So we're at nine degrees per hour. That's pretty good. So I'm very, very happy with it. Henry says that Germany is predicting up to minus 6C <laughs> next week. Wow. And uh, a gooder morning to you, almost machining. K-Bonk reports 40 and severe clear. You didn't follow directions, man. You got to put your location identifier there. This is like aviation. Pay attention. So thermal control, we're achieving thermal control. Uh, I put all of the order numbers. Oh, Philadelphia. Thank you, sir. Philadelphia, 40 severe clear go outside why are you watching this uh all of the amazon order numbers for all of my bits and pieces for the thermal stuff is all on my links page and it uh it is not expensive um so that's the thermal report oh the second half of the thermal report is that i put both the uh, thermal control and my mist collector on remote control. So I'm using the Lutron system. Phoenix is reporting rain, but warmish, maybe 60 degrees. I expect that from Phoenix. Oh, K-Bonk's got to change the printer on the filament, of course. Uh, filament on the printer. So <clears throat> let's see if I can show you this. This is a little hard to see. Put it where my eyes are because that's where we're focused. So this is the, the Lutron app. And basically those black boxes that I bought have a plug on one end and a socket on the other end. And it's just a remote control. Awesome. They could switch 10 amps. I could control it from my phone. I could set schedules. So both the, the mist collector 
and the heater are now on those remotes. And eventually I'm going to put the shop lights on that too. Good. I'm glad you got a mist collector, Henry. That's good for your lungs. So your lungs don't have to do it. Um, and that's not a joke. That's awesome. Um, my mist collector, just to give them a plug, is the Mist Fit uh, from a company up in Canada. Uh, and it's a terrific box. Okay, and we've got 3D printing discussions starting in the chat. This is how it's supposed to go. So that's the remote control report. That's been awesome. Um, and as I, I hinted at, it's not much of a hint. I'm I'm getting ready to lap. I this is a project that s sort of stalled, and uh, but I uh, kind of want to get back to this. So I've got my three uh, cast iron laps uh, from McMaster Car. Oh, I should put. I think I've put that data up on the web somewhere. But uh, machined them up, ground them. So these are all surface ground. And it's ready for the lapping process. And I rewatched Tom Lipton's um, lapping videos from a while back the other night. And now I'm, I'm all ready to go. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to talk about is how to use the laps. Um, Robin said some interesting things. The, the three-plate method is pretty cool for generating the laps, but Robin was of the opinion that you should have a pair of laps, one that stays on the bottom and one that stays on the top, and they naturally start to get a curve in them, uh, which we might talk about some more today. Oh, uh, so Kbonk is printing Gridfinity boxes for your tap collection. So... I'm interested in this Gridfinity stuff. I've been hearing a lot about it. So, <clears throat> once you get the laps lapped, right? Oh, the reason that Robin was talking about having a concave one and a convex one intentionally is so that you can make adjustments to the thing you're lapping. I want to learn more about this. One of the things I found was a chart uh, which has the uh, the images that you get on the 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 when the interference fringes when you use a monochromatic source and uh, using an optical flat. So I wanted to put up a chart. I don't know if you guys have this. You might want to screenshot this uh, if you don't. But I'm going to put up a chart of the uh, of the patterns you get using the uh, interference. So you'll notice that if it's perfectly flat, you get these parallel lines on the upper left. You can see that. And then when you move over a little bit, you'll notice that they kind of start to get curved. And this is indicating that you have a, a curve in the surface, and you can start to... Uh, use like toothpaste uh, or or uh, Dawn dishwasher detergent to get rid of that curve. That's how you do it. And if you go in circles, it automatically gets flatter and flatter and flatter. And I'm an expert in this, so I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about this for a while and make sure that you understand exactly how this is done. There's a lot of frou frou out there on the net, which is completely wrong. Hi. 
What the heck? Did you did you hack my computer? That's exactly what I did. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, we have our special guest today, Adam B. from uh, Laney Machine Tech. Hi, everybody. I was just yanking your chain. Uh, Carl Tauber asks, can you publish a PDF of that chart? Um, we'll talk about that. Uh, someone a... in the Instant Machinist community actually sells those on eBay. Yes. So, um, you know, to, to support him and his, you know, little little business venture, I, I wouldn't really want to PDF that. Yeah. So, uh, actually, I looked it up. It's on my list. Uh, it's a nice... It's a nice size chart, so uh, I would recommend getting it. But that is a good uh, good thing to have. But hi, guy. How are you? I'm doing great, man. I, I appreciate you calling me up and uh, asking me to be on here. Uh, the way that you asked me was like, I literally have nothing to talk about. Do you want to come on? <laughs> and I'm so glad that at once you run out of every other possible conceivable yeah. option, you call that's, me. That's exactly what happened, actually. Um <laughs> no i had no plan right and then you start I'll, I'll tell you what triggered me okay it was the waffle video okay the <laughs> waffle video i i i almost peed my pants when i saw that it was the funniest thing and your kids it was awesome it was awesome yeah they they so, were great they're naturals i mean all the only um like direction that i gave them was hey look at me and those are the natural faces that they use when they look at me. <laughs> yeah. Quizzical. Quizzical. Is he, he's doing it again. Yeah. 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 What, what is, is he, doing? he doing with those waffles? Yeah. Oh, let me turn on the chat window because there we go. K Bonk says that was brilliant. The waffles. That's so funny. Have you seen the Close Encounters movie? I did. And I didn't make the connection, but. As soon as you said that, I went right to the scene yeah. in my head, and I remember that it was just—it was awesome. Such a good movie, really, <laughs> really good movie. I mean, I, yeah, it was—it was, it was kind of nuts, like the way that it all came together. You know, like I was—I was literally eating. I, I made waffles for my kids, and I was just <laughs> sitting there, like looking at the waffles, and I like had that moment. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so it, it reminded me of that mashed potatoes scene because that was one that stuck in my head. So we went back and rewatched it. I was like, man, I got to do this. It was it was glorious. That's uh, going to make the Hall of Fame, the machining YouTube Hall of Fame. Uh, so that was that was fantastic. Although I have to say that we're going to have to replace your Kirkland maple syrup with some proper material. I'm just, it, it probably got the job done, but I'm sitting here in New Hampshire. I'm staring out there at maple trees, and uh, yeah, we'll have to fix that. Yeah, man, I would love some like small batch artisanal, you know, whatever, man. Send it over. We will. Uh, you're on the list. We'll figure it out. So, uh, all right. So, uh, I hope everybody was adequately surprised, but some of you probably knew it was coming. So, I I asked you on to talk a little bit more about lapping because I'm about to lap. Um, oh, K Bonk knows. K Bonk knows. See, he's saying grade B, that you need to have grade B. Let me explain this. Mm -hmm. I know this is a little bit of a diversion here, but uh, in maple syrup, the grade A 
is this really clear, magnificent, perfect maple syrup. And it's for the tourists. <laughs> okay. The grade B is the chewy stuff. It's dark and it's got twigs in it. And that's the one you want. It's the best. So K-Bonk suggesting that you get grade B is actually a great compliment. And that's the truth. So there you go. Heck yeah. It, it also makes a really good uh, lapping slurry. I heard that. Yeah. I heard that. We were, we were talking, uh, you and I were talking about the special special additives for the uh for the lapping slurry earlier i'm sure we'll get to that kevin says is maple syrup a good carrier for lapping medium yes absolutely uh almost says 80 grit sugar in a maple slurry <laughs> there you one go. way to describe it i'll tell you what if 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 we described our foods the way machinists describe their stuff nobody would eat <laughs> nobody would eat there's a, there's a kind of um, like polishing medium that they use in metallographic polishing called colloidal silica. It's it's cool because by controlling the I think it's by controlling the pH of the liquid you can control the grit size. Uh, and so I, I had this thought with the maple syrup that if you control the moisture content, you can actually control like the size of the sugar crystals that form. And so maybe, maybe, I mean, it works really well on waffles. Remember the way your kids look at you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just sort of point out there's a reason. And I think we found it. Uh, yeah, that could work. Oh, now I want, now I want maple syrup. I know oh. what I'm doing for lunch. What do you do? You you go out to a maple tree and you just like stick a screwdriver in it. Oh, laughing at it. No, they all all our maple trees just have they have a tap like it's like a beer tap. You just walk oh. up to it. Sounds it, amazing. Yeah, You've, we have to get you out to New Hampshire. Show you how it's done. Uh, Carl says you guys don't watch Adam Booth talking about food. I watch all of Adam Booth talking about food. In fact, this thing he just posted was uh, some shrimp thing for breakfast. It was like I was getting on an airplane. It was pretty good. So you uh, you've just experienced. You went out and you had this like uh, uh, spiritual retreat, and uh, you know, like burnt incense and like had little crystals around in a circle. And you walked around a barrel 700,000 times. Uh, and I, we want to hear more about this. Please, please tell us. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's been like a lifelong goal of mine to, uh, well, lifelong. I mean, ever since I started as a machinist and got into precision, I've wanted to, to, to make a telescope to actually grind glass and have it illuminized and use it in that kind of an assembly. And uh, so I, I got my chance. Uh, the local observatory, the Chabot Space and Science Center, has an amateur telescope making workshop. And there are actually quite a few around the country that are primarily uh, centered around these big observatories. There's one on the East Coast, uh, Stella Fane, which is like the really big one. Um, they're, yeah, like sort of famous around the country. Uh, anyway, so I've been, you know, like reading books and, you know, participating in this workshop. And it's really cool to have all these, you know, like old guys who are there to, <laughs> uh, you know, impart some sage wisdom 
because there's a you know with any kind of hand like manual process you can easily if you don't understand the feedback right then you can easily uh work yourself into a corner and then give yourself a lot of time uh to recover from it there's mm -hmm. actually one guy at the workshop who he at, periodically you're supposed to re, um flip, reverse flip. the the like which pieces on top you've got like your optic on top and then your tool on the bottom and they're ostensibly both just hunks of glass although we make the tool now out of uh, bathroom tile because it's cheaper but at some point you're supposed to flip it over because that reverses the direction that the curve goes so you have to like kind of control the nominal radius of curvature that way and he just wasn't doing that and so he by the time he got everything all matched ground all the way from one side to the other his radius of curvature was like three or four times what it needed to be. Uh, and so he spent the next several months grinding it back to what it is. I, I have a question. When you say the radius of curvature was several times bigger or small, several times smaller? Sorry, several times smaller, yeah. Yeah, okay. It went over the radius of curvature. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, got it. I'm with you. Yeah. That's... So so it's good to have the the old guys around. So my understanding is that as you as you grind, uh, the top one is going to get concave, mm -hmm. and the bottom one's going to get convex. Yeah, you you want to switch over to my iPhone so that I can show you what I'm doing over here. You have an iPhone and it's ready to go. It is. That's a surprise. Incredible. All right. As soon as I see your picture come up, we'll we'll do that. Uh, let's see, how does this work? You're on the air. Okay. California, you're on the air. All right, so here's what I got. And, uh, yeah, so right now I'm, I, I've kind of improved my setup here. So I've got this, um, old drum that I can partially fill with water so that it's really nice and stable. And then on top of it, I've just got this, like, anti-stick, uh, mat. And then I've got the tool on the bottom and the glass on the top here. Yep. And uh, you're absolutely right that as you're stroking this thing, right, and you can just use like forward and backward strokes, they say something like a third of the diameter on and off, like so. And just by kind of stroking it like that, rotating the top piece constantly, and like walking around the, uh, the entire drum, this naturally tends to wear the top piece more in the center than on the edges, because of course, I mean, you can see here that for like, uh, for for each stroke, you know, some section of the edge of the top piece is actually off of the tool, off of the lap, right? So it's just not touching at all. And for that reason, it doesn't grind there, right? So this concentrates the grinding on the center and not on the edges. Whereas you can see that on the tool right now, it's not, it's not touching over here on this. Uh, oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, the way that this is working is that the the weight distribution of the um, of the optic is concentrating on this outer edge area, right? I mean, it's it tends to kind of like tip a little bit, right? This is where the weight is distributed. So there's a little bit extra pressure right there on the edge, and so this tends to wear the edge more on the bottom piece than on 
um, than in the center, right? And so this is how you get that sort of like reverse effect where this goes concave and this one goes convex. And you can reverse it, right, to control that radius of curvature. And it's actually kind of amazing as you're grinding them, they really do match each other quite well. I mean, this is like almost ringing together. I mean, it like really wow. all the air and it like, it almost wants to lift it up. That's fantastic. Yeah. And, and of okay. course, the, the tool that I use to, to measure this thing is the spirometer. Yes, that was a nice job. Yeah, oh, thank you. This actually comes in in extreme handy. Uh, it's it's really really nice. You know, I was actually thinking a little bit about what Robin was talking about and how he, you know, he doesn't really like using the three plate method because he feels like it's unnecessary, and that actually makes a lot of sense to me because using this method right here, right, if you're just monitoring with the spherometer what your overall curvature is, and you know that they are more or less forming like true uniform curves then if the spirometer right if if you put the spirometer down on one one part and zero it and then you put it onto the other part and it reads zero then there is no difference between the curvatures they must both be flat <laughs> exactly self-calibrating right yeah so that's actually pretty cool and if and if there is any error then the error is doubled right so if it's zero here and then you get like a thou or something on here then the error for each is actually only a half a thou over whatever distance your feet are spaced so this is a pretty robust method um and this is kind of getting into another thing that i've wanted to do even longer than i wanted to make a telescope actually is that i wanted to make some um optical flats try making some flat glass surfaces and those you don't have to aluminize right but you do have to polish them really nicely yeah and i was considering you know using the three plate method or alternatively using this method uh you know to get them down and there was a while ago there was an article that i put on a textbook tuesday post which uh gosh what, what is it called it was called the development of high accuracy flat lapping techniques for large plates. It's uh, it's something I think I actually sent to you, Spencer, be, uh, you yeah. know, back when you were talking about doing your lapping plates. Is that the paper? Is that the paper with the schedule on it of of uh, yes. yeah the different methods uh, for each stage? Yes, that was and pretty that actually, cool. The, the thing that's in there that I thought was really really important. I mean, everything in there is like really good information, but the thing that I thought was really important is that as they're doing this kind of motion, they found that this tends, like the edges touch intermittently, whereas the centers are always in contact. And so what they found is that they will, after doing some oscillating strokes, they will do some rotating strokes. And that simply because of uh, yeah, I guess, I don't know, conservation of angular momentum. <laughs> uh, it tends to abrade the edges more than it does the center, right? So yeah, you can and, correct for any errors by rotating it a few times. And the edges, the, the edges have been in, in the grind a lower percentage of the time than the center, right? Mm -hmm. 
So when you rotate it, now the center has a velocity of zero, and the edges have have some velocity. So now they're getting more more grind than the center. Precise. So that that kind of makes sense. I like it. Yeah, I thought that was really really important. We we have a couple of questions popping in. Uh, almost asks, have you made it to finer grits yet? Yeah, I'm at 120 now. 120. Cool. I was at 80 grit. That's what you start off with. And, you know, to go from 80 to 120, it doesn't sound like that big of a leap, but actually the grit size is like, there's a huge difference. And the 80 grit is really, really nasty stuff. And it does some serious damage to the glass as you're grinding. So like, you know, now we're getting into lapping brittle materials as opposed to ductile materials. And you have to be very careful about subsurface damage on this stuff. So basically what you're creating here is a bunch of little, uh, well, they're kind of like two different sorts of pockets that you create when you grind this stuff. One is a sort of like large craters, and those are pretty easy to see. They look like little pits in the surface. So once you switch to a new grit, you can very easily see the larger pits uh, you know, against a background of the sort of finer matte finish. But the ones that are trickier are the little like thin micro fractures that, you know, don't have a very large like spot size, but are really deep. Hmm. And as you're grinding, you'll actually find that there'll be like little, little uh, small pits that open up like all over the place. And like, you'll get one down, but then another one will show up. Huh. What's happening is that as you're grinding down, those little micro fractures are opening up and you have to get down underneath all of those in order to get like a really, really high quality, like commercial quality optic. You need to get down below all of those. You can still have a very serviceable mirror if you have a few of those. Um, but to get it really good, you got to get rid of them. And so what somebody said is you have to basically grind uh, with 120 grit for like eight hours. And that would grind approximately an eighth of an inch off, an eighth of an inch. So these tiles are almost like just a little bit over an eighth of an inch thick. And so you got to grind those tiles almost completely off in order wow. to get rid of all the subsurface damage, which really goes down that far into the material. It's That's kinda, amazing. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Let's see. I, I don't want to miss anybody's questions. Uh Uh, different types for different refractive indices. And so, so what what is the material of the glass that you're... What, what type of glass are you grinding right now? Oh, uh, this is just borosilicate. Borosilicate, okay. Yeah, nice thick hunk of borosilicate. Okay, K-Bonk asks a very good leading question here. <laughs> he says, should the lap... Or he, he says it this way, shouldn't the lap be bigger than the glass? Um, in this case, no. In fact, if anything, the, the lap is usually a little bit smaller than the glass if you're going to be figuring a really large mirror, um, because that way you can kind of concentrate on one specific spot. So you just used a term of art called figuring. Could you just translate that for the machinists? Yeah, that's like shaping the glass. Okay. That, that's, this, that's this whole process, right? 
of uh, manually shaping this glass, and you know, and then like so, so you you figure it with this sort of a silicon carbide carbide abrasive, which really does a wonderful job. Uh, I think that for whatever reason, uh, in our sort of uh, amateur lapping circles, we have uh, gotten accustomed to the idea that diamond is best for everything, and I have experimented with diamond a whole lot and. From my own experiences, I can tell you that diamond is actually not good for most things. Uh, ha, it, interesting. It is, it's very, very hard, which is cool. It cuts very aggressively, but it's also really unforgiving. And it will embed charge into practically any material and stay there forever. <laughs> Yeah. So, like, part of the difficulty with things like this is uh, following good lab hygiene between grit sizes to make sure that you don't have any contamination, which is, like, with diamond, almost impossible. So, like, if I were going... Like, I think that diamond's real strong suit is if you are going to make a lap out of soft material and then permanently charge an abrasive into that lap surface then diamond is a great candidate so think like you know plated diamond abrasives or think of you know aluminum laps that have uh, diamond permanently charged into them there's another uh i i think it's called an, an ab lap if you look up ab lap there's actually a really cool patent out there but it's basically like an aluminum lap that has been uh ground lapped annealed to get rid of any distortion uh, or, or stresses rather and then relapped and then it's dusted with uh diamond powder and then it's hard anodized so that the uh the the anodic layer the aluminum oxide actually grows around the diamond and permanently fixes it into the lap oh wow like, yeah it's a permanent lapping surface like it That's... never loses its charge boy that sounds super interesting i actually did try it once uh and had sort of mixed results the the problem that i had was not even with the hard anodizing is with like the the correct method for charging the surface with diamond because you do have to put a little pressure on it to get it partially embedded before you build the uh, anodic layer it was really challenging wow, but you can it's... buy them they come up on east uh, on a ebay occasionally that's pretty cool um k bonk asks who makes the glass blanks that you buy let's see this one is what is it called oh shoot i can't i can't find it um uh it's called supermax so i think okay. i think it's i i'm pretty sure it's borosilicate there are a number of uh like glass shops that you can buy this stuff from uh, online. And I'm, uh, I'll am i like send it out later, maybe give it to uh, Spencer to put in the show notes or something. But sure. yeah, you can buy this stuff online. It, it's surprisingly expensive, actually, I have to tell you. Interesting. This, this hunk of glass was like $145. And they've gone up in price since then. I got the pre-COVID deal on this thing. But this same <laughs> hunk here would be like $200 for something even thinner. Wow. 
it'd be it'd be very interesting if you could do the you know get a process going for making optical flats i don't see any reason that should be any harder than making a mirror yeah it turns out that making things really really flat is actually harder than making things curved seriously yeah <laughs> Um, but I, I wanted to, one more thing I want to mention, if you will humor me here, uh, I do have one more setup and I, this is actually related to using the three plate method and what I think is the purest version of the three plate method. Okay. Does it involve a large hammer? No. Okay. By the way, while while you're setting up, um, Indiana John says, I know that jewels need to be ground super slow because they fracture if they heat up at all. Is it possible to lap too fast and cause stress fractures? He also asks, do you use an ultrasonic cleaner to sterilize between grits? Um, good question. So like when I'm, if I'm doing metal, I definitely use an ultrasonic with glass. I'm not worried about charging. That's not really uh, yeah, that's just not what I'm worried about. What, you know, the, the silicon carbide, the reason I use that, the, the reason that it's used is because it's extremely sharp and it breaks down really fast. So this, it's a very, very good, uh, material for, uh, grinding brittle stuff. Uh, I, I can also show you what they use for uh, finishing. So typically what's used for finishing is this stuff, cerium oxide, mm. which is this kind of like gross brownish color. <laughs> and uh, it's something like one micron I think is what it is. But the cool thing about this is that it also, uh, there's like a chemical polishing effect that is involved here. So th this is uniquely used for grinding glass. And another one is this stuff that I picked up that I haven't used yet, but this was also recommended to me. This is Lindy A. Uh, and I believe this is aluminum oxide. It's extremely fine. And this is also used for fine polishing of glass, although I'm not exactly sure what the um, application for this is, but that's the kind of stuff that you're using. Neat. So, yeah. So what are we looking at on your, on your, on All your right. table here? So, um, so first of all, one thing I wanted to mention to, to folks is that uh, there's this really great website called uh, Surplus Shed, and they've got all these really great optical components that sell for like nothing so that includes these pieces here all of these are what they call um non-aluminized mirrors so they're all quarter wave flat or better on one side and the other side is uh fine ground just enough so that you can see through it actually and if you were to coat these with aluminum you would have a really nice front surface mirror hmm. But they, uh, you know, they go on sale and you can buy them in enormous quantities for like $2 a pop or something like that. 
And so these are basically optical flats. So just wanted to point out to people that these are out there. Sometimes people think that optical flats are uh, really expensive, but there's absolutely no reason that they need to be. So they're flat on one side, but they're uh, frosted on the other side? Exactly. And actually, one thing I'd really like to do is, um, you know, what, what they use for polishing, because the, the grit is actually only one part of the polishing mechanism here. The other big part of this is what they make the lapping substrate out of, and they use something called pitch for that which is like a sort of resinous material uh, whose viscosity changes, uh, you know, dramatically and very directly with temperature. So even just, you know, like around room temperature, it will change quite a lot. And it's never a perfect solid. Uh, and so what you can do, once you've got your mirror formed, then you pour the pitch over your lap or tool. And then while it's still hmm. slightly warm, you set your mirror down on top of it and it naturally conforms to whatever your curve is. And then you just hit it with some cerium oxide and water and lap it. Uh, and when you're polishing it that way, the, the curve is already made, right? The curve has already been generated. Uh, and all you're trying to do is take off any last little bit of subsurface damage. Uh, we have a question from Kevin Blodgett. He says, cerium oxide reminded me, do you guys know what diam diamatine is the watchmakers use word it or diamond well he says the watchmakers use it i assume it's aluminum oxide it Di does have the it does have diamond in the in the name yeah di diamant is the you know it's just another word for diamond yeah we'll have to take that uh for homework kevin and and almost machining says Save your swarf from your stone grinding, Spencer. Well, funny you should mention that. When I stuck my hand in the coolant tank to put the heater in, I have this quarter to a half inch layer of super fine uh, stuff at the bottom of the tank, which isn't interfering with anything, but I am going to save it. <laughs> and it might be interesting. We'll see. Yeah, it's some kind of mix of aluminum oxide from the stone and diamond from the wheel right uh the wheel is very stingy the yeah. the wheel the wheel does not give much up so i i'm assuming it's just the super fines of the aluminum oxide um after you know what didn't get filtered uh yeah it'll be interesting yeah that makes one day sense. I'll I'll grab some. Maybe I'll send you a little uh, uh, container of it, and you can see if it does anything. Please send me some soup. I will send you soup. <laughs> so um, so what I want to mention here, right? So I've got these three little uh, square flats, basically, and you know the the principle behind the three plate method is that you can have two surfaces that match each other perfectly. And they don't have to be flat, like, and, and that's proven, right? Between, you know, the tool and the mirror that I've been grinding, they are very nicely matched, but they are not even remotely flat, right? So in order to get three flat surfaces, you have to match three surfaces together. And if all three of them match, then they have to be flat. There's, I mean, mathematically, there's no way for them not to be flat and all three mm -hmm. of them match perfectly. And there are different ways to match them, right? If you're uh, scraping them, you can kind of, you know, rub them against each other, see where the blue transfers. That's one method. Um, 
in my mind, the uh, spherometer is actually, it kind of acts as the third plate. I, you know, I was going to say that earlier. That popped into my head. And, and I think that's brilliant. Yeah, and it's it's really, it's great, actually. The only problem is that you can't, I mean, you can only check the the sort of the cord depth between those three feet, right? You're not checking the whole topography. And I specifically made my spherometer a little bit smaller so I could check at least in a few places. Um, but, you know, then it's acting almost like a repeatometer, right? Um, but if you have reflective surfaces and transparent surfaces, right? It's, this is something you can't do with metal, but you can definitely do with glass, is that you can use uh, a monochromatic light source to check these interferometrically directly, right? So if we set two of these surfaces against each other, let's see, can you... Maybe shade the room light a little bit. Oh, I just gotta, I gotta catch the reflection. Uh, uh, there it is. Yeah. You got All right. it. So, so here we've got fringes on this piece, and you can see them. Okay. So if those are flat, and these are flat, okay, if those are flat and those are flat, and if those are flat... <laughs> or rather I mean straight, if the fringes are straight, then the only way for that to be true is if all three of those surfaces are flat. But you can <laughs> you can put two of these together and see straight fringes, and they could be curved, except that they're the exact same curve, and so the air gap doesn't change between them. That's what you're really testing here. So because of the low price on these little widgets, it's... It's trivial for anybody to, to pick up three of those. They're self-checking, and they're known flat, and they could be used for a variety of purposes. Yeah, um, exactly. How, so how would you... Um, I think you mentioned this to me once before, the possibility of taking the frosted side mm -hmm. and polishing it just enough so that it's you, you can see through it. Yeah, and actually that's kind of what I was getting at before is that one of the things, one of the projects I'd really like to do is because I, I bought a lot of these when they were on sale. So I have like probably a hundred of each size. Wow. And um, what I'd really like to do, because it wouldn't take very much, is just to like make a quick pitch lap and just polish up the backside so that, you know, it doesn't even have to be perfect just so that you can see the, um, the fringes through there a little bit better. But as you can see, you can already see it. And, uh, you know, and then maybe bring it down to the summer bash or something, or, uh, you know, um, I like to have workshops with my students and I, I've done lapping workshops before and I would love to give these away as like souvenirs so people can check like, you know, it's like gauge block size, right? It'd be interesting. Uh, how would you mark the not super flat side or you, or you thinking of actually flattening and parallelizing both well, sides? Well, I wouldn't really need to. Um, yeah. in this case, but I, I mean, I would like to generate some actual flats, right? And, you know, it might yeah. even be kind of fun to try and make an optical parallel out of these. Yeah. That's where my head was going is, is in the shop, that would be super useful for things like checking micrometer anvils, um, and that sort of thing. Yeah. 
that that wouldn't i don't think it would be too hard dude yeah too hard as long as you have a good feedback mechanism i mean you can check the cool thing is that you can check the parallelism of this using auto collimation and that is probably the way that i would do it because Mm -hmm. when if both surfaces are flat and polished then if you put it in like in front of an auto collimator you'll get a reflection back into the auto collimator of both of those surfaces so in the auto collimator you'll see two images of the crosshair reticle and if there's any distance between those two images then they are not parallel right because the ang- the light is coming in at two different angles but if they are perfectly superimposed on top of one another then it means that the two surfaces are perfectly parallel and you can cool. tell that down to, you know, like a, a easily a half of an arc second. Um, and uh, I would just look this up the other day, but like over a one inch distance, uh, I think it's something like 20 millionths of an inch uh, error over a one inch distance is equal to like two arc seconds or something. So you can get this pretty, pretty gosh darn close. That's awesome. We have projects. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's Surplus Shed. It, what's their URL? Do you know? Is it surplusshed.com? Surplusshed.com, yeah. The, the guy who runs go. it, old guy, Fred Lamont, I think is his name. Really, really nice. Customer service is awesome. They're actually uh, they're in Pennsylvania. They're not far from you. Are they all optical or uh, They have some like stuff? little mechanical devices, small uh, gear motors and stuff like that. Um, you know, they've got all the stuff to build like a World War II surplus binocular and things like that. That's pretty cool. And what what glass is that? Do you know? This is also, uh, oh, shoot, I, it's just borosilicate. I mean, it's always borosilicate. Okay. That's pretty boro. I mean, boring. I mean, silicate. Yeah, the, the really cool stuff that, that you can get nowadays is a zero dur, right? And that's like, it's a, it's a two-phase material. And the two phases have like opposite coefficients of thermal expansion. So when one grows, the other one shrinks. And so this thing basically doesn't move with temperature variations. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool stuff. I, I, I've seen the name somewhere, but I didn't know what, what was interesting about it. That's pretty neat. That's it. Well, excellent. Uh, Henry says, it's almost impossible to get an autocollimator here in Germany. I've tried to get one for a few years now. I don't know why. Uh, Almost Machining says he's telling Henry that you have plans to make one. Uh, uh, Can we switch back over to my video feed here on the computer? Yeah, I'll have to call the guys in production and see if they could do that. Do you have a uh, PO number? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this this is the one that I built. I started a YouTube series on it. but uh yeah then i had kids and <laughs> that happens <laughs> yeah um but this is all built with like is like s- aluminum that i had laying around and then all surplus shed components so the neat. objective lens uh the eyepiece was actually e- uh, ebay and then there's a beam splitter in there that was surplus shed there's a little led in the back neat. it's not it's actually not that hard to build one it's it's basically just a telescope uh, Carl says, and now this makes me sorry I got rid of an electric stovetop. 
that zero dir is used for electric stovetops. And that oh, kind really? Of, it sort of makes sense because they're thermally stressed to hell. I mean, yeah. Wow. And I had an electric cooktop and I saved them. Like, that's going to be useful for something. And I think it lasted like five years kicking around the shop. And finally, I got rid of it. And now I learned that it was something valuable. Could have been like, yeah, just to rip the top off of that thing and make some optics with it. Could have been a contender. <laughs> uh, okay, good. Uh, let's see. So I, if you guys have questions, put it, put it in, the, uh, in the chat. We're doing oh, good here. There's, so, there was one more thing. Um, so uh, there was a post a while back. I can't remember who it was, but somebody posted this like really big uh, optical flat. They had purchased like a 12-inch or 16-inch optical flat and you know they didn't know how flat it was they're like you know i'm gonna i have to get rid of this thing because i have no way to check how flat it is i'm gonna have to send it to a calibration lab it's going to be really expensive and uh, that got me thinking about different ways to check these things and you know i mean you can check it with a spirometer you know you can actually use like check it like a surface plate with an auto collimator and a, a mirror sled um but you can also check them interferometrically and so you could use the method that I just showed using three pieces against each other. Of course, then you have to have three 16-inch optical flats, right? which is kind of a no-go. Uh, the other thing, too, is that like how you support that's really important because mm -hmm. glass is uh, significantly less stiff than even steel is, uh, and so it will, it will deform. But the other thing is uh, there's something called the Raleigh water test. And that is where you actually, um, you use a still surface of liquid as the reference. And of course, that you can make as big as you want. And it's not perfectly flat. It follows the radius of Earth's curvature. Uh, but over a distance, like I did the calculations, you can do the calculations, but over a distance of something like this, it's like one one hundredth of a wave flat which That's, is pretty gosh darn good yeah it's a little bad. bit tricky to set up you have to worry about like water tension uh issues especially around like edges uh you have to collimate the light so you can't just basically you can't get the water surface and the test surface close enough without water tension effects uh to just use just straight diffuse monochromatic light you have to create what's um what's called a fizzo interferometer where you have like a collimated light source but i've been playing around with that a little bit lately and I, I think i'm pretty close to getting it but that is something that i would really like to figure out and show people you also have i mean literally seismic issues you got vibrations oh, uh that you have to think about somebody had a question uh who is going to do your aluminizing on your mirror well the the place I wanted to use it's down in like Santa Cruz area somewhere but that you know the old guy who runs that I mean he he's like in his 90s now and he was the original uh person who figured out this like garage setup for aluminizing mirrors and he was the one who did all the uh like the sidewalk astronomers John Dobson um era sort of mirrors and I think he's slowing down. He may not even be accepting new mirrors now, but he used to be able to do like a big mirror for, I don't know, like 30 bucks or, or less. Wow. Uh, so that was pretty good. Nowadays, it's going to cost more like 100 bucks, I think, to illuminize it. And I'll probably have to send it out. 
there are a few places, you know, everything these days is, you know, you have to send it through the mail. There are very rarely local places that'll do stuff like that. Very interesting. I, I guess the, the, the methods that I'm familiar with are sputtering. Uh, are they generally sputtered? So I, I am not super familiar with uh, the difference between sputtering and what this process is, but it's like vacuum deposition. So you put it in a vacuum yeah. chamber uh, and then you heat up the aluminum. Yep. And that's yeah. the same thing. Yep. Vacuum deposition, vacuum, uh, vacuum metal deposition, I think is the whole. That's the stuff. I, uh, I have a friend who has access to this equipment and I've been trying to get him to do a few mirrors for me. <laughs> but uh, like, like, Whenever you ask for favors from somebody, it's always... Uh, well, you know what this means. If you can't find a place to get it done, you have to be the guy. So now you're going you're gonna to have to become the vacuum sputterer. It's like, the, it's like the mirror whisperer, only different. Those vacuum chambers, man, they are, like, they are no joke to make. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the other thing that they used to use, aluminum is nice because it doesn't uh, tarnish. But mm -hmm. what they used to use back in the day is silver, right? Mm -hmm. And silver, you can actually apply chemically, uh, and you can buy this product. Um, it's not even that expensive, uh, but it kind of it comes with like a, whatever some like a, like solution that has silver in it, and then it has like a. I'm actually not sure if it's like a catalyst or if it's uh, something that actually stops the reaction. But hmm. you you spray them simultaneously onto like a big glass surface, and uh, yeah, it's it's good for maintaining. I wonder if there's any. I wonder if there's any etching involved here. Like, is it a little bit of HF to get a little etching going, and then the silver marches in and locks locks on. Who knows? Uh, okay. Kbox says uh, he thinks Caswell's uh, sells a kit, Caswell plating. It's possible. I I've been wanting to experiment with this stuff, so it's another thing I can send you, Spencer, if you want me to, uh, you know, to put it in the show notes. I will be happy to put the stuff in the show notes. In fact, I'll I'll take the Caswells uh, as a homework. They're one of my favorite uh, places. And Carl says I think sputtering used ionized gas, like a gassy tube sputters the cathode. Yeah. So in in. Oh, I should have brought one up. In vacuum tubes, there's a, a thing that gets put in called a getter. And in manufacturing, after they seal the vacuum tube, they put 12 gajillion volts on the on the electrode called the getter. And it, it pulls out all the remaining gas molecules and it causes them to react to the metal. And that improves hmm. your vacuum but what happens is you the metal that the getter is made out of ends up plating to the top of the tube so you get a mirror mm. on the top of the vacuum tube hmm. so uh yeah i think that's just a version that's just a version of of sputtering uh, basically cool. fascinating so when I, I used to work a million years ago i used to work at analog devices and there was a there was a guy there I won't mention his name, but if he ever sees this, he knows I'm talking about him. Who used to write uh, data sheets? That was his. That was his thing, and he was an amateur telescope nut. So a lot of the things that came out of your mouth today, I've heard. I didn't understand, but 
like a Stellafane. Mm-hmm. He, he was like, yeah, he was like a major proponent and participant in, in that. And uh, other, other things. It was pretty funny how you were firing some neurons from, from those days. Uh, well, I, I appreciate that. I, I made a few notes here. Um, you brought up the issues of embedding and diamond embedding. And that's something that I've been thinking a lot about because I, I want to make my, my plates, right? But I, I don't want to end up with embedded diamond because I might not want to be using that particular grit. Um, so I, I noted that Tom's videos, he used um, a garnet mm-hmm. on... Uh, he used the time the, saver stuff. The, the time saver stuff, exactly. And then you talked about how silicon carbide is a non-embedding um, grit. Uh, si- silicon carbide can can embed. It, it can embed in, in ductile mm. materials, um, but it also breaks down. That's the real key, right? Is that even if it does embed, then it'll break down eventually. Yeah. Uh, aluminum oxide is the stuff actually that doesn't really embed very much. Hmm. Well, uh, so we'll have to talk about this a little more, but I, I, as I launch into getting these things lapped using the three-plate method, I'm trying to decide what to use. And right now, uh, I'm being encouraged to use the garnet method with the time saver. So I may be ordering some of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm really not a... I, I'm not a big fan of diamond, to be honest. I, I, I've used... I've tried it so much. And like... Which, I see Robin using it, you know, and he's like, I don't know what he's doing. You know, he's like, there is some magic in his process that I I can't get the same results. So I wrote down, here's what my notes say. It says, Adam versus Robin, Diamond Wars. We're going to have the Diamond Wars. We're going to have to get you guys on. And uh, East meets West. We're going to discuss the pros and cons of diamonds. I think you guys are going to just fight it out. Uh, There's no way I'm going to win against... (laughs) <laughs> against robin there's just... i don't know you're making a really good case like robin his point was uh his point was don't waste your time just use diamond okay but i never heard him directly address the embedding thing so i think we're gonna have to get him on and and figure that out but and, we're and heading... you know what he does when when he gets some kind of contamination in the surface He'll go in and like dig it out, like each little contaminant. He'll dig it out manually. I my understanding is that Robin actually has PIM particles, and goes into the quantum realm <laughs> with some snap-on quantum wrenches and literally changes the matrix. That's my. I believe that's what Robin does. I, I think what it goes to show is that with any manual process, there's a lot of like personal style involved, right? Yeah. So like, yes. What works for me is not going to work for Robin and yeah. vice versa. I think that's yeah. the big takeaway, right? Is that you have to experiment. There's literally no way for me to give you a recipe that's going to work perfectly for you. That's that's hard to do. That's really hard to do. Well, we did it. We, we've uh, we've used up an hour of everybody's lives successfully. And I really appreciate you coming on. This is yeah, fun. Thanks for inviting me, man. Uh, you know, flat is not easy. And uh, correct curves are not easy. And none of this, uh, none of this lapping stuff is easy. William C. Jenkin passed on. Is this the guy? Brian, clarify, please clarify. 
<laughs> Kevin says he'd watch every week. Diamond Wars. <laughs> We, we we only bring this yeah go one ahead. more thing man one more thing i, I was gonna say about the the lapping plates yeah. um i saw the surface that you got on there from the grinder it looks beautiful man oh, and thank to you. be honest with you i don't think that you're going to improve it with lapping it's already flattened up <laughs> it's pretty damn flat yeah i mean for real what what would be an even cooler project? And actually, I bought some fifty two one hundred chrome steel um, mm -hmm. to do this. It's like what they make. Uh, well, this, that's the old formula for gauge blocks. Um, but making toolmakers flats because those actually have to be optically flat and um, polished so that they can ring to gauge blocks. And and that's that's like the next thing. I think people need to start making those because right, lapping so plates don't actually have to be that flat. But a toolmaker's block is is generally not uh, serrated, is it? Uh, it's it is not usually serrated. Although, like if you look at gauge block comparators that they actually use to measure parallelism and size of those things, mm -hmm. uh, the anvils are they look like little heat sinks. Yeah. And a big part of that is so that you um, you know you don't deal with like air films. Okay. Well, I'll. Uh we may instantiate yet another project. First, I got to get this project done and I want my optical flat. I have a six inch six. Yeah. I think I have a six inch optical flat and I want my optical flat to say I achieved Nirvana here and then we can move on to the next thing. Okay. I don't want to drag it out too long because we're going to have too much fun and we can cl clearly go to four o'clock and uh, thanks everybody. Uh, Adam, thank you for coming on. Thanks, everybody, for being here. We'll be back next Sunday. I don't see any impediment. And uh, ciao. Bye. See, see you guys. Bye.